I would love to introduce our speaker today. We are in a sermon series, as I said earlier. Last week we kicked it off. Um, we're looking at the Creed, and it's great that this week we have Laura Doe speaking to us. And Laura um, is uh, part of our clergy team, and she's been with us uh, pretty much from the beginning of the church, but uh, she has, uh, for a couple of years, been, uh, had two children and has been looking after them as returned from maternity leave. And we're so glad that Laura is with us on the team. So please would you welcome Laura. Hello everyone. Um, thank you, Toby. Yes, hello. My name is Laura. I'm on the clergy team here. And as Toby says, I haven't been around that much. I've over the last sort of year or two, I've been being busy, being covered in various forms of snot, sick, and wee, which has been wonderful. Um, but I'm now back, so it's great to be here speaking. And as again, as Toby said, we are continuing our series um, today on the Creed. And last week, Toby started the series by looking at God as Father. And today, I have the exciting and very small task of talking about the one, the only, Jesus Christ himself, um, through looking at the kind of core central section of the creed. So no small feat for me. Um, And again, if you weren't here last week and you're wondering, what on earth am I talking about? What is the creed? No, I'm not talking about a 90s rock band, but that might show my age a little bit. Um, A creed in the church is a shared statement of faith. And there are many creeds um, throughout scripture. And the Apostles' Creed, which we're talking about today, is basically a kind of combination of all the oldest statements of the faith by the church. It's a sort of summary of beliefs of the early church dating back to somewhere in the second century. Now, according to tradition, the Apostles' Creed was composed by the 12 apostles. However, more recent thinking is that actually it was developed um, from early baptism classes that the bishop would take. So the bishop would get the candidates there and he would ask them a series of questions like, do you believe in God the Father Almighty? Do you believe um, in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting? Like a really intense baptism class. And that's kind of how it has formed over the centuries. So for those who wouldn't call themselves Christians, the creed is an opportunity to hear what Christians believe. And for Christians, the Apostles' Creed is an opportunity to affirm what you do believe. And one of the most beautiful things about the creed, in my opinion, is that it unites Christians across the globe. John 17 verse 21 says, I pray that they will be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us that the world will believe that you sent me. And that's why there's such great power in reciting together. When we say we believe, we unite as the church and we show the world what we believe. We show the world who Jesus is. So we're now going to recite uh, the creed together. Feel free to join in, or if you don't want to, that's absolutely fine, whatever you are comfortable with. And as we do it, remember the power in saying these words together. So they're going to come up on the screen now. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. 
On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. So as I mentioned, we're going to be looking at that central section that we've just um, said together, which is talking about Jesus. I'm going to be unpacking two questions this evening. And the first question is, who is Jesus? In 2014, I was really, really privileged to go on a trip to Israel. And it was probably one of the most impactful trips of my whole entire life. To see in real life the places where Jesus had lived and traveled and preached and where he had grieved and died and rose again was like really mind-boggling and a real reality check for me. And it's really, really stuck with me ever since. It's probably one of the reasons actually why I feel so impacted about what's happening there and in Gaza at the moment. It's so, so awful. But throughout the whole trip, the, the place that engraved its kind of most poignant memory on me was visiting the Garden of Gethsemane. There's going to be a picture coming up on the screen of me um, looking at the Garden of Gethsemane, hopefully. There we are, looking a bit younger and a bit skinnier. Um, Gethsemane is, is mentioned quite a few times um, throughout Scripture. But most notably, it's where Jesus went to pray and to grieve just before his arrest and his death. And while stood here, um, in this, looking at this olive grove at the foot of the Mount of Olives, the thought of Jesus like contemplating his coming death in this place, crying out to his father those words we read in Matthew 26, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, really brought home to me the reality of Jesus's humanity. You see, I think since my own faith began, I've, I've known about Jesus. I've learned about Jesus. I understood maybe that he was a real person. But standing where he stood, in his shoes, I suppose, my heart finally reached out to him in the sense of his humanity. I suppose you could kind of say, to some degree, that I was finally able to kind of empathize with Jesus. And that came as a real shock to me because... Jesus is God, right? Can we empathize with God? I suppose we can because Jesus was fully human. He was divine, but he was also fully human. The theologian, um, Dr. Robert Lister, writes like, he writes it like this. What Jesus' miraculous conception does is to ensure that he's fully divine as well as fully human, but it does not make him less than fully human. It is true that the conception is a miracle, perhaps one of the greatest miracles that redemptive history has ever known. And yet from the point of Jesus' conception forward, his gestation and development in the womb is like any other human being. His passing through the birth canal, a normal human birthing process. His being dependent on his mother for nourishment and feeding and everything from having runny noses to having his diapers, you can tell he's American, his um, diapers changed is ordinary, normal human experience. He is more than just human, but not less than fully human. So who was this 
fully human, yet fully divine person who literally changed the world. And how do we know that he was both those things? In the 17th and 18th century, there was um, an intellectual movement called the Enlightenment, and it emphasized, um, it was a movement that kind of emphasized reason and individualism and skepticism. And it catalyzed loads of theologians and scholars um, to kind of go on quests to un um, uncover and understand the historical Jesus. And today, as a result of like many of those quests, um, theologians and scholars have come to the agreement that there is absolutely no dispute that someone called Jesus of Nazareth lived 2,000 years ago in Israel. There is an overwhelming amount of evidence um, backed up by a scholarly technique called textual criticism. If you've never heard of it, Google it, textual criticism, um, which confirms this. And it's been about 100 years, really, since someone tried to prove other otherwise. So he definitely was living, breathing, sneezing, crying, human. But was he divine? Or in other words, was he God? The line in the Apostles' Creed, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, brings home the message that as believers, we are to understand Jesus as divine. The right hand is seen as a place of honor and status throughout biblical texts. And here um, in the Apostles' Creed, it's kind of affirming the equal status to the Father within the Trinity that Jesus had, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, there are many arguments about um, that prove to prove about Jesus being divine. And we could, at this point, go down a rabbit hole of, like, Greek translation and theological criticism. Um, so I'm not going to be able to do that tonight. I'm not going to be able to give, like, a full circled exposition of all the reasons I believe prove that Jesus was divine. We'd literally be here for hours. But I'm going to give you three, if that's okay. <laughs> Firstly... In the Old Testament, there are hundreds of prophecies about who the Messiah would be. And Jesus fulfilled, debatably, around about 300 of these prophecies in his lifetime. Now, to give you an idea of the probability of that happening, there was a mathematician, his name is Peter Stoner, and he did some res um, research which resulted in finding out the probability of Jesus fulfilling just eight, so not 300, just eight of those prophecies in his lifetime. And he said it was one in 100 quadrillion, which I didn't even know was a number until I found this out. One in 100 quadrillion. Basically, that is the equivalent of filling the whole of the state of Texas two feet deep with dollar coins, marking one, chucking it in, and telling someone to find it. Jesus fulfilling prophecies on this level provides literally overwhelming evidence that he was who he said he was, the Messiah, God in human form. A second reason. Since the first century, uh, scholars and theologians, even as far back as people you might have heard of, like Ignatius or Tertullian, who were kind of first and second century, they have confirmed Jesus' divinity through what Scripture says. And the Apostle Paul in the New Testament um, writes this in 1 Corinthians verse 8, um, 8 verse 6. He says, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and from whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and, and through whom we live. So Paul definitely thought that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was God. 
And furthermore, we can also um, see how many other different uh, New Testament writers um, confirmed that Jesus was divine. In um, There's a passage in Hebrews. It's just going to come up on the screen quickly. I'm not going to read it out, but this is Hebrews 1, verses 10 to 12. Um, and this is a New Testament passage which is talking about Jesus. And as you can see, here it is. And then I'm going to put up um, next Psalm 102, verse 25 to 27. And I'm sure you can see the similarities between these two scriptures. And Psalm 102 refers, is referring to the God of the Old Testament, who is Yahweh. So basically, what the, uh, the writer of the Hebrews is doing is he's directly linking Jesus to the God of the Old Testament, to to Yahweh, who is the creator of heaven and earth. And this happens throughout scripture. New Testament writers saying that Jesus was divine through linking passages to the Old Testament. And then a third reason, a third reason to prove Jesus' divinity is his resurrection from the dead. In the Apostles' Creed, we read these words, Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. Now, despite many theories, no one has ever come up with a satisfactory explanation for the absence of Jesus' body from the tomb. Some people say, maybe the authorities stole it. Well, then, why didn't they produce it when everyone was saying that Jesus had been seen? They couldn't. Could his body have been stolen? Well, then, why would the robbers have left the only thing that was valuable in the tomb, which was the grave codes? And then the resurrected Jesus was seen on more than one occasion by more than 500 people. Were well, literally all of these people making it up? It seems pretty unlikely. So here are three reasons. And as I said, there are many, many more um, as to help us to believe and to see that Jesus was who he said he was, God divine. And if you'd like to find out some um, more about this, some more reasons to do a bit more explanation around this, um, can I just let you know that Alpha is starting again in January, January the 31st. That is a really great place to come and to explore these questions. And you can go to the website and sign up if you'd like. So we've looked at who is Jesus. But my second question for us today is, who is Jesus to you? Now, you might be sitting there and thinking, Laura, um, Jesus isn't really anyone to me. He's just some bloke I've heard about who lived a very long time ago. And that's great. That's totally fine. Everyone is on a journey with this stuff. Or you might be sitting here and thinking, yeah, I, I know who Jesus is. He's real to me. I believe he was the son of God. And my question to you is if you, if you maybe were having a conversation with someone, maybe someone who didn't know Jesus or had a Christian faith, and they asked you this, who is Jesus to you? What would you say? What would be your answer? I asked some friends this this week, um, and some of the answers were, Jesus is my friend. Jesus is my savior. Jesus is my counselor. Um, Jesus is my best friend with an edge. Um, one person said, we also have a Jesus who is a nurse on the ward, but I don't think you mean him. I didn't mean him, but Jesus is a nurse, maybe. The well-known theologian N.T. Wright believes each generation should wrestle with the question of who Jesus is, if it is to truly be the church at all. 
And as Christian, we're called, Christians, we're called to be disciples. And to be a disciple is to be a learner, a learner about Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul talks about how he wants to imitate Christ, who is all things to all people. And Jesus can be all things to you. But how do you see him? I, of course, um, have been thinking about this question a lot myself in the last week or so, writing the sermon. Got me thinking about it a lot. And I kind of realized for me that my view of Jesus has changed over time. I think in the past, I probably would have said, Jesus is my friend. But now at this moment in my life, I have to be honest, um, probably after one of, one of, if not the hardest years of my life, for many reasons, but not largely sort of from navigating, trying to find out a whole new way of seeing my sense of identity and worth in the unseen world of not working and motherhood, grappling with different questions like, what is my value? Am I a good mother? Am I gonna completely screw up these tiny little people's lives? You know, how is my mental health? Um, what do my friendships look like in this season? What does my leisure time look like in this season? Where do I find my value if not in my work achievements? I don't know if anyone can relate to any of those feelings that I've had in the last year or so. In all of those kind of questions and challenges, I've kind of come to realize that Jesus to me in this season has been a really kind and yet challenging mentor. I'm going to now just read um, a verse, uh, um, some scripture from John 8, verses 3 to 11. It's going to come up on the screen. Um, we're just going to have a quick look at this, um, this passage. So this is um, Jesus. He is in the, um, he's in the temple, and we're going to read what's going to happen here. So the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They brought um, this woman to Jesus in the temple. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the old ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. I love this passage so, so much. I think it shows us so many things about who Jesus was. He knew his worth. He knew his boundaries. He was not drawn in by those teachers and those Pharisees. His expectations of others, he knew what they were. He knew his strength and resilience. And he walked in this deep knowledge and it overpoured. We see it throughout scripture. It overpoured into every interaction that he had with others. Jesus knew his identity to the core. He always saw the bigger picture of people's lives when he saw them, and he encouraged them to see it too. And this has been so helpful for me to think about in the last year and to learn from. 
And also just seeing like the grace and the kindness he demonstrated to people like this woman or other people like Zacchaeus or Matthew, people who like society totally shunned and despised how unjudgmental he was at his very core. This is the Jesus that challenges me to reflect and to grow as a person. This is the Jesus I long to be more like. I think sometimes we don't really realize what we actually think and feel about Jesus. We go through life thinking, oh yeah, he's a good guy, son of God, my friend. But if Jesus was and is who he said he was, if he died and rose again, if he was human and divine, if he's God, it changes everything. It means that in this book, we have a documentation of the most perfect human being of all time. We have a blueprint for how to live our lives, how to love, how to grieve, how to treat others. And therefore, we always need to be delving into his life. We need to always be thinking about, obviously, taking into consideration our context compared to first century Israel. We always, always need to be thinking about um, that sort of cliche question that people always say, you know, but I think it's so true. What would Jesus do? Jesus in Hebrew means God saves. And before his birth, the angel Gabriel gave this name to Jesus as his proper name. We're going to be hearing about this story a lot over the next few weeks. Um, and yeah, Jesus' name expresses both his identity, God, and his mission to save humanity. And this is it's such a powerful name. Um, if you know me at all, you know I probably can't get to the end of a talk without mentioning my mum somewhere. It's a bit weird, I know. Um, but to cut a long story short, a few years ago, my mum found out, really amazingly, she found out that she had two half-brothers and a half-sister that she never knew existed. And when my mum went to meet her sister for the first time, they obviously were like talking about their lives and talking about their children, etc., and it turned out that, like my mum, her sister had one daughter. Now, my name is Laura Elizabeth. And it turned out that my mum's long-lost sister had also named her daughter, her only daughter, Laura Elizabeth. Isn't that amazing? That's so weird. Names are so important. They carry meaning. They tell you who someone is. And this, is, this was especially the case, actually, in first century Israel. And so on this Remembrance Sunday, as we, in a few minutes, come to communion, to remember what Jesus, the God who saves, did on the cross, can I encourage you to think about who Jesus is to you? Can I maybe encourage you to think about him in Gethsemane, crying out to his father moments before, before being led to his death? Can I encourage you to enter maybe into a time of reflection of who Jesus is and what that means for your life at this moment. Maybe he is a friend that you really need at this time. Maybe things are hard. Maybe he is a friend that is challenging you as well, giving you direction. Maybe he is a counsellor giving you comfort. Maybe he is the creator of the universe, just giving you awe and wonder and joy. Jesus is all these things and many more. 
But how is he specifically revealing himself to you in this season of life? And what can you learn about it? And if this all feels a bit too much, (laughs) and you don't feel like you know Jesus that well, could I maybe also just encourage you then instead to just focus on his name? Maybe just say it a few times in your mind. And maybe even just ask him to come into your life to show you who he is. It says in scripture, knock and the door will be opened to you. Jesus, the God who saves, will come into your life if you allow him to. Amen. I'm just going to pray. Heavenly Father, Jesus, Lord, we thank you so much for your life. We thank you so much that you came to this world so that you may know what it is to be human. We thank you that you died on that cross for us, God. We thank you that we can commune with you, Jesus, each and every day. We can come into your presence and learn from you, God. Help us, Jesus, to look to you, to look to who you are, who you were, and learn from that, God. We have so much to learn from you. Thank you, God. Amen.